Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hi, Octavia. Hi, Carrie. How are you doing? I'm a little under the weather today. I know. I'm so I'm sorry if I'm a bit below par, everybody, but I'm here and I'm happy to be here. You're never below par, but I I do feel bad for you. You're a real trooper. Thank <laughs> you. I am a real in. trooper. I want all the medals. <laughs> I can give you some medals <laughs> from my illustrious sporting careers. Oh my god, actual <laughs> medals. Just bragging now. No, I want it. I want it. <laughs> um, I have a lot of medals. Actually, I think my parents threw away all the medals. It happens when you run track; you just get medals all the time. Carrie, okay. I have a lot of medals. Please. Reporting for duty. <laughs> well, oh, actually, it's that's a very convenient reference to have just made because today on Literary Friction, we're going on the run. Oh, I, oh my, I set I right? that up for you. Yes. I did. Or more accurately, we'll be sitting still in the studio talking about literature that features characters who are running away both physically and psychologically. From Cora and Colson Whitehead's The Underground Railroad to Madame Bovary. We're thrilled that our guest today is Emer McBride, who has come back on the show to talk about her third novel, Strange Hotel, which follows an unnamed protagonist as she moves from hotel room to hotel room around the world, trying to forget her past. Octavia, do you want to introduce Emer? I would love to. Emer McBride's debut novel, A Girl is a Half-Formed Thing, won the Bailey's Women's Prize for Fiction, the Kerry Group Irish Novel of the Year, and the Goldsmiths Prize. Her second novel, The Lesser Bohemians, won the James Tate Black Memorial Prize and was shortlisted for the Goldsmiths Prize. In 2017, McBride was awarded the inaugural Creative Fellowship at the Beckett Research Centre, University of Reading. We actually spoke to Emer before about her second novel, The Lesser Bohemians, a long, 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 long time ago, and you could probably dig it up in our archive if you really want to. Yes. She was great. We were maybe a little green in those days. We were a little green. We also did it in a, in the Faber offices, remember? And people yeah. kept slamming people the kept doors. People kept slamming the doors. So the sound quality is not great. <laughs> but but she really, was great. Yeah, and she we was couldn't great. wait to talk to her again. We're really glad she's coming back. So today you'll hear our interview with Emer. We'll talk more generally about the theme of being on the run in literature. And finally, we will give our usual book recommendations. So lace up your sneakers and jog along with us for the next hour on Literary Friction. Emer McBride, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. We've asked you to start with a reading from Strange Hotel. Do you mind setting it up? Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to read a little bit from the section called Austin. And um, yeah, so the book is about a woman who travels from hotel room to hotel room. This is this is Austin. She opens the door. He says, can I come in? She closes the door again. He manages a hold on before it shuts. But she, weightless in the width of shock, replaces the chain and turns the lock, then listens for his footfalls away. Upon hearing none, she admits harbouring some doubt that she would. So now, although she cannot be certain, she may reasonably deduce he is devising an alternative approach. She already knows she's miscalculated the outcome of this, and given her natural antipathy towards inconclusiveness, is irritated at having gotten it wrong. Also, and almost worse... Where is the unruffleable demeanour she so painstakingly constructed? She'd appreciate it reasserting itself now. This angst is pointless, though, and wasteful, too. Take a breath. Wait a beat. Self-reproach is a luxury for which she manifestly does not have the time. She really ought to get on with spreading the logic around. An untender resolve now is obviously all. Settle on the parameters of the decision, then make the choice. Even the wrong one would be preferable to this stalled botch. And if the scale of it appears unmanageable, just start small. Compartmentalise. 
She is already accomplished in this department after all and may rely on it to stand her in good stead. Should she spy through the spy hole? She has little stomach for that, the queasy, fish-eyed reflection of her own anxious perspective. Also, she thinks she recalls a mention of his fondness for chess, not ostentatiously announced, but in reference to something else, so any such hackneyed move will have been anticipated unquestionably. Perhaps he even banks on it. She can't really imagine why, although he has certainly gone very quiet out there. In fact, now the only sounds filtering through seem to issue from the housekeeping staff beyond in the hall. Trolleys trundling, for instance. Distant, discreet raps upon doors. Apologies in various Latin accents of whose particular origin she remains unsure. Why didn't she study Spanish in school? Well, because that was only French. And even the French teacher had appeared unenthusiastic about imparting it. Never mind. It was the tenses she could never quite get. Never mind. And numbers above 60. Who can keep track of all that? Never mind. The education system isn't on trial. Never mind. It doesn't matter. She's here now, so... Think. What is the reaction he might not expect? Well... And she realises this is weak, but in her graceless desperation, it's something at least, and in this way a decision gets made. So, to thwart whatever advantage he imagines he's gained by his intemperate, unwarranted, overzealous display, she definitively turns her back on the spy hole and presses her spine to the wood. She is aware, as a countermove, this isn't much use, but in light of the previous paralysis, its impact is enormous. She can finally approve, breathing out, and does, and looks around. Not a great deal of this room rejoins her to calm. She persists, however, until a quiet confidence arrives that she might, if only at some obtuse angle, have regained the upper hand. And if he doesn't realise she has? Well, surely that's just greater proof. Take your triumphs where you find them, she thinks, especially when the thick of battle appears to be your only alternative. A little melodramatic, perhaps, but she gets her own point, and therefore lets the time slow down, sheathes the panic back under her skin, becomes a little more of herself again, and lets the room be what it is. Thank you very much. It's so wonderful to hear you read that. It's a bit of a tongue twister, (laughs) I will admit, but uh, yeah. But I think, well, it's a tongue twister because you're so playful with language. It's wonderful to hear the sounds out loud. Could you talk a little bit about the seed of this novel, Strange Hotel? Well, you know, it wasn't the book that I was planning to write after Lesser Bohemians. um, And it really just started by accident. Um, I thought of it initially just as a short story, perhaps. But um, as it progressed, as I kind of did the first room uh, in Avignon, it, it just began to grow and I kept seeing her in more places and she just became more and more interesting to me Um, and I suppose there are a number of things that it came out of you know I've I've loved Thomas Mann's Death in Venice ever since I was a teenager and I suppose I, I kind of wanted to explore that slightly more European heritage in my writing but also at the same time I was doing um I had a creative fellowship to work in Beckett's archive And, uh, you know, much as I thought that writing this was an escape from Beckett and and all Beckett means, it actually, he kind of leaked in anyway. 
Yeah, he's definitely there. And yeah. it, you, it, I mean, listening to you read it made me think it. you could almost perform it as a monologue, couldn't you? In quite a Beckett way. Yeah, I think it's, it is quite performative because it's, you know, you are inhabiting her as, as she's, she's going along and, and her kind of reactions to herself and her, her own thoughts. And, you know, I mean, there's obviously a lot of Beckett influence there. Yeah, well, I love the, the way that even though it's written largely in the third person, you can experience it as uh, the protagonist's dialogue with herself more than anything else. So that's how I sort of listened to it when I was reading it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's a lot of it is third person, but it's a very close third person, and it's a it's it's she herself trying to see herself in the at a distance at a remove in the third person, at which she kind of keeps slipping out of and then scurrying back to as as quickly as she can. So it's it's really your kind of the reader gets to to spy in on her thought process rather than be told about her or to hear her tell about herself. She's not telling; she's just going along thinking. Yeah, I I wanted to ask you about the idea of running away from oneself because we've themed the show um, on the run, and the theme is always inspired by the the novel or book that we're talking about with an, with an author, and that sort of slippage and her need or yearning to see herself from outside of herself, but kind of not being able to do so, or and also the fact of the narrative being driven by her moving from place to place over time and this trope of the hotel room. And I wonder, were you thinking about a character who was running away from something as you were writing or was it something that developed as the book progressed? Um, I think in, initially the idea was that she was just someone who was who was quite detached from life. And then as the writing progressed, it became clear that she was really trying very hard to be detached from herself. Um, and and I suppose making the choice then to kind of put her in these hotel rooms, which are so, you know, obviously classically impersonal places to be that aren't giving you any clues or indicators about her or what, you know, what she does or why you know, even why she's there. Or what. It kind of forces the character back on her on herself and the self that she's trying to run away from is the thing that is the one thing that she can't escape. I think about language a lot and how it can be used to allow people in but also to to keep people away and you know there's a line in the book where she talks about trying to keep the world at the end of a very long sentence and that is I feel is the kind of the key to the book is is this notion of someone who is using language uh to, to keep the distance within herself um and and I suppose that was part of the the kind of the game of the book was that obviously my first two books are kind of notorious for their fractured syntax and you know new invented language and you know people kind of complained loved or complained about <laughs> the fact that <laughs> that the, that the language was you know a big part of the reading experience was kind of finding your way through or finding the keys into the into the language and so it was kind of fun to use completely grammatical straightforward language i mean this is everything is syntactically correct in this book and yet for that to be the the way to to not communicate with using the really readily readable, understandable, completely straightforward language as a way to keep people 
very, very far and to keep herself far from herself. You talk about your last two books, um, A Girl is a Half-Formed Thing and The Lesser Bohemians. Did you actively, as you were writing this, think about this book as a departure? Because it obviously is for, for those reasons and for other reasons as well. Um, yes, I mean, it It felt, I, I think also because it was the first time I was writing um, a middle-aged character rather than, you know, the first two books are much younger protagonists. I kind of, that really informed the language as well like how do we how do we protect ourselves as as we get older we obviously do and you know when you're when you're young everything rushes at you and you let it in and it does great things to you and it does terrible things to you and but as you get older you get a bit more wary about that you're less inclined to to allow everything to just rush in and so Again, you know, with that that fractured language seemed to to really work for those younger characters for that kind of visceral experience of life and to to reenact it. Whereas, you know, using using much more formal language is is again this way of of keeping the process of life distant, of of keeping it manageable, of of pushing it away what she doesn't want, and so. Yeah, it did feel very different. But of course, at the same time, there's, you know, in the way that Lesser Bohemians refers to Girl as a Half-Home Thing, this also refers to Lesser Bohemians, if you want it to. And it doesn't have to, but there is a suggestion that it might be the character from Lesser Bohemians 20 years later, but also not. And that's why she's not named, because I didn't really, you know, kind of wanted to just leave that. That could be an interpretation if people want or not. Time is is kind of a character in this novel. It feels like she's having these conversations almost with a concept of time. And there's a line that really stood out to me where you describe hotel rooms as a place built for people living in a time, out of time, out of their own time anyway. But yeah, you know, you said that this is the first time you've written a character who's uh, looking at, at the world from later on in her life. And is that why time came into it in such a big way like do you have a sense of feeling in a different I don't know experiencing time differently as someone who's further on in their life than when you wrote your first novel for example yeah I mean I think time obviously it feels faster the older you get but also it gets longer everything that goes behind gets further away and sometimes you do feel like the past is a long time ago even things that quite recently felt new no longer feel new and I suppose I was interested in time for her because of the idea of grief and how grief changes over time. And, you know, I obviously dealt with grief up close, like the moment of grief in in uh, um, A Girl as a half from Thing. But with the, with this, you know, much older woman, I was interested in the, the idea that she's, she's not going through the really active, terrible beginning of grief where it's just completely overwhelming and suffocating she's she's maybe she's 10 years on from it and yet it still informs so much about her and of the choices that she makes in her life it is the thing that she finds almost un, unbearable and yet is kind of slightly depressed that she does find it bearable mm. that in a way she, she would prefer for it to still be really alive inside her. And actually the way of coping with it has 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 kind of created a deadened sensation around her life, all the other emotional aspects of her life as a result. 
I also wanted to ask you about hotel rooms because there's such <laughs> I have some experience in this area. <laughs> <laughs> They're such an important part of this book. Um, and I think it's a book that takes real fascination with them, the sort of mundanity of them and the sameness, but also the difference. And I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about your own interest in hotel rooms and what you really wanted to capture in this novel. Well, yeah, because, you know, I up until A Girl is a Half-Worm thing was published and I started going on book tours, I hadn't actually stayed in a lot of hotels in my life. And so there was tremendous excitement and glamour thought of, of hotels. And when I started going to these hotels, you know, the first you go in and look and what's the free toiletries and what's in the minibar and oh, you know, and what's the view like and what and everything felt quite sort of exciting and glamorous. But really, quite quickly, you are tired of going to hotel rooms and bored by hotel rooms and that they just become very kind of lonely places where there's nothing to distract you from what you're thinking. So if you're having any kind of, you know, existential crisis, the hotel room is the place it's really going to get its claws in. And and yeah, I suppose I I wanted to memorialise all the, the hotel rooms I stayed in. So there's lists in the book of places. So these are actually places that I have all stayed I've seen all that of those places. That was a lot of hotel rooms. <laughs> <laughs> it is now a lot of hotel wow. rooms. Wow. <laughs> um, but I suppose I felt like perhaps I wondered if it was possible to do something with all that dead time. What feels like dead time, and because especially if you're on on book tour, it's you're not going to a hotel on holiday. It's not. You know, and you're not really going to go and see much of the city. If you're lucky, you might get a few hours to have a wander around. So you could be anywhere. And it feels like time that's wasted because you're you're waiting to leave all the time. You're just waiting to leave, either to go out and do your event or until it's checkout time or whatever. And I just thought, I wonder, is it possible to do something with all these dead hours that I have accumulated over the last few years? Can you make something out of it? So I suppose Strange Hotel was that. Sex is a big part of this novel, while also not being a big part of this novel, which is, you know, interesting. And um, you write a lot about sex in Lesser Bohemians and, and it, it comes up in, in Girl as well. And I wanted to ask about when you are drawn to writing about it, are there things that you try to avoid or are there things that you try to reach for when, you, when you're kind of conceiving of how to approach it? Yeah, I mean, I think... I mean, obviously, it's Lesser Bohemians is very much about discovering character through sex. And when I first started to write that book and I realised that there was going to be a lot of sex in it, I did think, oh, bloody hell. <laughs> That's embarrassing. It's, no, it's some of the best sex I've <laughs> you, read. Yeah, yeah. You, wrote, you wrote such good sex in such that novel. Good sex. I still think oh, about good. it. You know, it's it's hard to do and you did it. Yeah. Yeah, I, but I think what the difference was, one was that I thought, OK, if I'm going to do this, I'm not allowed to use any sex words because there's just such a terrible sexual vocabulary. I mean, it's just like, thump, you know, pumping and grinding. <laughs> thumping. <laughs> groaning and, you know, like there's there's not a lot. It's very kind of diminished, mm. I suppose, because it just, people weren't allowed to write about it for so long. And it's all very, it's very phallic as well as very male. And I, I just really wanted to avoid all of that. So I, I kind of forbid myself from using any of those words. And, but it was really when I realised that rather than sex being, well, you know, here's a, a decorative bit of humping in the corner. It was really central to working out who the characters were. 
how they revealed themselves and and how they made connections between themselves even when they didn't really want to especially when he didn't wasn't he just for him it was just going to be a shag and that was it and and so using it once you're using it for a purpose then it, you, of course you write about it in a, a different way it becomes something else it becomes a really useful tool um, as it were <laughs> um, <laughs> but with Strange Hotel you know yeah as you say there's there's a lot of, about sex in it but there is no you don't see any sex in it I didn't write any sex in it but you're kind of there maybe for the aftermath or for the thought of it or or kind of refusing herself it and then gets herself caught watching porn instead and you know things like that and so I just, it was nice to just allow it to be the echo rather than be the centerpiece. I also loved that you were writing about women and sex in this interesting, different way. And just to, I mean, it shouldn't feel revelatory, but just to have a character in this novel who feels desire and wants to sleep with men in hotel rooms, that feels different. I don't know if you, if you feel that way, if you feel passionately about showing the spectrum of women's sexuality in a way that's interesting and different is important to you. Yeah, it, it really is, actually. And I mean, women generally, but there is sexuality particularly um, because I, I do feel that there's very kind of tedious ideas about what a woman can be. And and I really wanted to write this character who who was capable of kind of deep feeling but also of being completely ridiculous because somehow women aren't allowed you you're allowed to be serious or you're allowed to be funny but you're not allowed to be both of those things and i also wanted to write about sex not being a sort of major tragic event in a woman's life and that casual sex is not always about self-hatred because that seems to be the only casual sex women are allowed to have. Men have it for all kinds of reasons of boredom and, you know, everything. They can have sex for any reason. But women, if women have casual sex, that's self-hatred alone. And I don't think that it is. And it isn't for her. And I suppose I wanted to kind of just claim back a bit of that sort of, you know what, women can be like, Jesus, I wish he would get out of the bed now and just go away too. Women can also feel like that about men. They're not, you know, waiting to be cuddled and comforted at the end of sex. They also think, I, you know, I could really do with just having a cigarette and go to sleep now. And I wish he would get out. Yeah, it's a real two fingers up to the idea that a woman always secretly wants commitment, no matter what she's telling you or how she's behaving. Obviously, she secretly wants commitment with a man. Yeah, beneath it all, <laughs> yeah. the the desire to be, you know... The wife and mother is always there. Yeah. Well, this is the thing that's interesting in this book as well, is that we meet this character, but we have no markers for her life, really, until quite far on in the text something comes up, and I don't want to um, give any spoilers, but, like, it's it's really... It's, it's revelatory, actually, to meet a female character like that, because I think still so often women are, even now where we don't always expect to find women characters in the home or anything like that, of course, we're a long way from that, but there is still often a tendency for women to be in relation to social structure or to um, men in their lives or children or things like that. And I, I really enjoyed being with a character who didn't have any of that at the beginning, you know? 
Yeah, um, and and I felt even with the, with the list of hotel rooms that they were kind of sufficiently wide that you're not thinking, oh, well, she must be a travelling saleswoman or she must be a writer or she must be. I really wanted her to just to just exist on the inside and for people to think about what is going on inside this woman. And what is what is her internal life? What is her battle with her own internal life? And this is not about how people view her or what her place is in the world. I mean, there is a bit of like she does get quite annoyed regularly about the things that she knows she's supposed to be concerned with being a middle aged woman. But apart from that, she doesn't she's not really engaging with politics or social structures, as you say. She's you know, it's just pure person. Yeah, which is the bit that to me feels quite Beckett, you know, that like free play of identity. Yes, well, as I said, he he got in there despite (laughs) my best efforts. (laughs) I was also thinking about Virginia Woolf. I don't know if if you were thinking about Virginia Woolf at all. Obviously, her characters are much more grounded, but the way that she's so interested in the way people think things through. Yeah, I'm, there were echoes I'm not a great Virginia Woolf fan, I oh, have to say, which I hate to admit. No, lay it out. I yeah. want to hear all about this. We accept all opinions. Well, no, that's not true. But <laughs> I accept that opinion. <laughs> From you on this day. Yeah. I mean, I find Virginia Woolf interesting to think about and more interesting to think about than to read, I suppose, is is where I'm at with Virginia Woolf. What's your objection? I find her quite tedious. I just, I, f- I find the, a lot of the writing very, very unexciting. I mean, I, I very much get that. I, to, I, that was definitely my first experience when I first tried to read The Waves. I, it was not, it didn't come to me at the right moment in my life. And then I went back to it later and had a very different relationship with it. But yeah. Yeah, yeah maybe, well, maybe I, I'll, I'll have a go again. But I no, find, I mean, no. you know, I do find, like, for instance, there's a lot of Beckett I find incredibly tedious, but there's enough to make me want to keep going. Yeah, I love Virginia Woolf. I <laughs> yeah. take, I, it like pierces my heart in this way that is intense and I can't really explain it. Getting back to, to what is happening in her mind, this is very much, we, we talked about grief, but it's also about just pain and living alongside pain and you know trying to get away from, from pain. And is, is that something you wanted to capture? It's, yeah, it's, yeah. Not a, it's not a happy book in many ways. Yeah, well, you know, it's like life. You know, it's, it's going to end badly eventually one way or the other it's not going to end well for any of us and yeah I, I, I'm i very interested in how people live with pain or try to not live with pain or and the inescapability of it and how sometimes it abates and and you think it's gone but then it's back and you know I think pain is such an unglamorous subject and also when it's kind of I don't know, people, I think they like to tie it very specifically to something and then it becomes manageable. Dealing with other people's pain. You can go, well, I know that this, um, your, you know, your cousin has recently died and that's, that's what's wrong with you and that's okay. But of course, the internal experience of pain isn't quite so neat and you can't compartmentalise it in quite the same way. And it's... um. It's hard to share it. It's very hard to share it. And even when you do share it, it doesn't often help. Maybe a bit, but really not not a lot. Usually it doesn't go away. It doesn't become something else. 
uh, and it's always really easy to access it and and to access it accidentally. And that's the hard thing when you kind of do something, you say something, you just think, oh, and you feel it and it's just there and it's completely inappropriate to your surroundings. But it's it's there. I think, you know, pain is very interesting. It's important to think about it like that as well, because I feel like culturally at the moment, there's so much emphasis on fixing and this idea that you can fix your pain if you meditate enough or if you eat the right food or whatever. And you can't. I agree with you. It's it's part of it's a fundamental part of life. And actually, the idea that you could or should fix it um, stops people from being able to learn how to feel optimism and pain at the same time. And they're not mutually exclusive at all. I feel like we've reached a slightly dangerous place in some ways when the message would be, it would be better for all of us for the message to be as it is in a book like this. You know, it's a beat that accompanies you throughout your life and gets louder and softer at different moments, but it's not the end of the world, even though it feels like it, right? Yeah, and I I think there's a lot of pressure put on people that it's somehow some kind of failing if you're not all right. And if you're not over it in the right way, and, you know, that's the, that's the thing about pain is that it, you just accumulate it and you carry it and it can change and it can become manageable or but it, it, it doesn't it doesn't go away. And this is, I think, trying not to not experience it does lead people into a dangerous place where one, there's a feeling of failure when when you experience it and and then to the kind of deadening effect of hiding from it. And, you know, and she does lots of that in the book. And there's there's a consequence to that. And she's not particularly happy with the consequence either. The last thing I wanted to ask you is about the length of this novel, which is very short. First of all, I'd love to know if, if you thought it was going to be a short novel. And then second of all, what what was exciting to you about writing something that was short in this way? Yeah, I, well, because I didn't know what I was going to write, I didn't, you know, I, I first sent it to my agent. It was in, it was only four parts then, and it was about eight and a half thousand words. And I was just sent it to her and I was like, it's a bit of a long short story, but, you know, maybe someone, and she just read it and said, oh, I think there's more there. You should go back again. <laughs> and so the next time I sent it to her, it was about 1600 words. And she went, oh, yeah, I really like it. I think there's more there. <laughs> I went back and thought, oh yeah, she's right. And then, so it's about doubled again. So it's about 32,000 words now. I don't know. I feel, I, I, it is a very short book, but at the same time, I feel like it's, you know, it's like the TARDIS. It's like it's bigger on the inside. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's there's a lot there, even though it's 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 something quite brief. And that's that's kind of fun as well, I think, to to do that, to kind of go in deep and heavy but briefly. And it's funny because I think we think of short novels as something that have shortened down from something that's usually much longer, but for you it's actually expansion. So this feels quite long to you in some ways based upon the original seed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I yeah, it was just supposed to be a, a kind of a little thing that passed the time and and it was really nice to just kind of make it and now it's there and I and I also wrote it very quickly and I wrote it very privately. I didn't sell it in advance. No one was waiting for it. No one knew about it. No one was saying, where's the next book also, you know, because it was quite soon after Las Bohemians, I suppose. And that was that was really nice. It was a bit like writing Girl is a Half-Form Thing, where there was nothing at stake. Nobody knew 
anything about it. No one was waiting and I was just free to fail quietly and privately, which is really what you most need as right. a writer, I think. The dream condition, basically. Yeah. I'm Failure so happy. And pain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so happy you had that. <laughs> Emer McBride, it's been a joy to have you on. Thank you so much for coming back on Literary Friction. Thank you. My pleasure. episode is sponsored by Picador, who are publishing some brilliant new books from their already beloved authors this year. Do you get excited when a writer whose work you've loved publishes a new book, Octavia? I do, yeah. It's such an exciting thing to see where a writer's mind has taken them next. Um, and I really love the feeling of knowing I'm in safe hands as well, you know, or that I'm returning to a world of perspective that I know I've already enjoyed before. Me too. I think there can be so much focus in the publishing industry on debut authors, but when you're a really passionate fan of someone's work, there's nothing more exciting than when an author publishes a new book. And, you know, people get better as they write more. So it's great when when somebody is practiced and is an old hat. There are lots of brilliant writers who have exciting new books coming out this year from Picador. That's absolutely right, including a new book from Emily St. John Mandel, um, her 2014 dystopian novel Station Eleven, which I know you loved, Carrie. I loved it. Um, was loved by everyone from Carrie Plitt and Tyler <laughs> to George R. R. Martin. And this year she's returning with an exciting new novel, The Glass Hotel. Set between the high rises of Manhattan and a remote hotel in British Columbia, it's a story about greed and guilt, fantasy and delusion, art and the ghosts of our past. And it'll be published in April. So keep your eyes out for it. I, for one, cannot wait to read it. And there's also Olivia Lang, who we had on the show talking about her last book, the novel Crudo, also with a new book out. This April, Picador are publishing her next work, Funny Weather. It's a collection of essays on why art matters, especially in such turbulent political times. It brings together a career's worth of writing about art and culture in which Lang argues that art can change how we see the world and offer fertile new ways of living. So look out for those and tune in to the next mini so to hear details of more new work from beloved authors coming this year. This is Larry Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, back here with Octavia Bright to talk about this month's theme, which we've called On the Run. That's right. I didn't run away. I'm still here. Thank you for doing that. (laughs) (laughs) I also have not run away yet. (laughs) Although, am I running away in my mind? Always, darling. There are so many different kinds of running away, as we will get into. So let's talk first about literally running away in literature, because it is a theme that crops up again and again. What does it mean for plot? I mean, obviously, it's a great driver for plot, isn't it? Yeah, big time. You get a character who gets to experience a bunch of new things. You also immediately have conflict 
and, uh, you know, the conflict of their choice to run away in the first place, where they might be running to. I mean, in some ways, this is like a parallel conversation or a continuation of our conversation about new beginnings, right? Because when people are on the run, they're often on the run to a new beginning. Um, but it's quite interesting to start thinking about what comes before the new beginning, right? The process of actually leaving. But yeah, it's a, it's a great narrative device. It's, a, it's got a lot of potential. Yeah. And there are so many ways that somebody can be on the run, especially if they've had to leave something or someone who might want to pursue them. So I was thinking about, okay, what are the different ways this might work? I mean, obviously, there's breaking out of prison, the Count of Monte Cristo being the sort of er narrative in that space, or all the light we cannot see. I mean, there are so many books set during the Second World War when when people were forced to leave places and go on the run from people who wanted to pursue them and kill them in some spaces. And of course, you have to be really sensitive about those kinds of narratives because you don't want to make someone's tragedy and pain into a thrilling escapade. But I think there are plenty of novels that do it really well. The Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead is another example of a, a, a incredibly well-told, moving portrait of a woman fleeing slavery that still manages to be a fascinating plot twisty novel right Tanahisi Coates's latest book The Water Dancer as well is um looking I mean in, in a similar it's working in a similar space it's also about slavery narratives but it brings a kind of whole magical realist thing into it um but yeah again taking a really difficult complex painful historical situation and turning it into into thrilling literature I also think though you know Anne Frank's diaries fit here because although she wasn't physically on the run that's the whole point but she was you know the idea of being on the run from from a terrible regime it's easy to think that that's going to be about motion and movement but you can be on the run and be imprisoned you know and be st static completely We've been talking about books and stories, both fiction and nonfiction, about characters who are on the run, whether they're being pursued or if not quite pursued, they're in, in mortal peril. Um, but what about novels that where people choose to go on the run? I mean, this gets back to new beginnings, doesn't it? It's like you go on the run in search of a new life. Sometimes it's a very foolish decision. I was thinking of Rabbit Run, of course, which has the name in its title, which is about this man trying to get away from the sort of drudgery of, of domestic life, which I think is is quite critical of his decision to try to escape his life, isn't it? It is, but it's not critical enough, in my view. I mean, the Updike books are fantastic. They're also very sexist. Yes. Um, and it's, even though he's critiquing, he's still uh, glamorizing the, like, man who runs from the domestic drudgery of heterosexual marriage, which I have, I have some thoughts about. Yeah. Um, but they are... I set you up for that. You did, you really <laughs> did. They are, they're, they are brilliantly written books, and they are, yeah, they're very much about the way that, you know, we've created a society that can also be a prison for ourselves. And it's kind of all our own making. Like we've structured marriage this way. We've structured the kind of elements of masculinity that need status in order to thrive. It's it's interesting to think about from that perspective. But I was also thinking of a book that I mention every now and again that I love called Cold Comfort Farm by Stella Gibbons, uh, which is a satire and very funny, but it's, it's about a woman... Flora Post, who's kind of on the run a little bit from uh, the absurdities of society life. And she goes to this farm and gets involved with these weird sort of relatives. But again, it's another character who's sort of suffering under the weight of something that is totally human, not 
you know, supernatural. It's not like the threat or peril of a um, fascistic regime. It's kind of the small miniature fascisms of society. Yeah, totally. And I think that's why books about being on the run can often be such great critiques of society, can't they? You know, even uh, Room with a View by Ian Forrester is about a woman who leaves English society and finds a new life in Italy. And it's partially because she's totally constricted by the society in which she lives. I was also thinking of Frankenstein, which, of course, begins with this amazing chase scene between Frankenstein's monster and Dr. Frankenstein, who made him. And Frankenstein's monster, of course, is forced to go on the run because, well, the argument the novel is making is that this monster is an innocent who's corrupted by society who can't ultimately accept him. Yeah, totally. Another writer who writes brilliantly about alternative communities that form because of being on the run is Nell Zing. Her book Nicotine, which is another actually satire, it's very, very caustic and funny, um, but it features a bunch of misfits who are living in a group house and kind of struggling against a society that won't accept them. And it's all social critique and it's very mordant and... Um, I think ultimately it sort of says you can't really escape these things because they you the structures that are oppressive will reform even in your alternative community because you've internalized them so profoundly, which I think is, a you know, how do you escape structural oppression when you have also ingested it and built your identity around it? Because how could you not? Because structural oppression pre-exists your existence. Cheerful, I know. <laughs> also, I mean, the point you made in our interview with Emer, which is we can't escape ourselves. Yeah. We never can. And so much of running away is about trying to get away from yourself. Oh my God, don't I know it? And <laughs> there she always is. <laughs> <laughs> and and of course, you know, running away can also be a psychological act as much as it is a physical. And of course, those two things go hand in hand. And it's it's a little bit impossible to extract them from each other. But let's think a little bit about what it means to run away psychologically. Were there were there any books that came to mind or themes that you were thinking about? I think addiction came up for me immediately because it's the kind of the most direct way of doing that. You know, whether your poison is drugs, alcohol, chocolate, shopping, whatever, you know, it's a... Um, addictive process is something that's available to all of us that embeds more deeply in some than others but is 100% about escaping the self and escaping anything that feels difficult and there are some you know some brilliant addiction memoirs one I found very poignant was Dry by Augustine Burroughs um, but also A.A. Gill's memoir uh, I can't remember what it's called actually now I don't know Poor Me maybe I can't remember but it's very good and and again very thoughtful about the way that addiction what it is to be inside the experience of addiction um and the thing about addiction as a form of running away that's so heartbreaking is that it's a it's a form of escape where you auto ultimately are always betraying yourself so it's a very unoptimistic running away even if in the moment it feels liberating and it feels pleasurable it is self-betrayal first and foremost and it will always have a sticky end but yeah that was the that was the immediate thought I had what about you that was a really beautiful way to put it oh thanks to say. I mean I've had some experience yeah. in this arena well it's, a, it's <laughs> I, I really love the way you phrased that thank you I well I was thinking about the adultery novel which is one of the you know the great tropes of of novels yeah. which is all about psychological escape I mean sometimes physical escape but but mostly about the constrictions of marriage and what people do to try to get out of it yeah and the whole allure of fantasy yes which is you know like I can't believe I sort of didn't think of that word before but you're absolutely right fantasy is the ultimate 
running away, isn't it, in some ways? Yeah, and of course, why do we love to read adultery novels? It's it's partially because maybe we wouldn't do it ourselves, but it's it's the fantasy. It's the allure yeah. of something that we kind of want to experience with with a remove a safety buffer yeah what's your favorite adultery novel (laughs) (laughs) um well what is my favorite adultery novel i don't know i can't say i love madame bovary but i think madame bovary is an amazing novel yeah and i think it's an it's an amazing novel about except it's so i don't know it can be quite boring i might take that i didn't think it was boring but i think it's a novel that doesn't have a lot of love for its main character I would agree that and and so I don't think it is a particularly progressive look at adultery yes agreed I I'm trying to think do you know the novel that I have heard is great is Fire Sermon by Jamie Quattro I have it on my shelf and I haven't read it yet yeah which is a a sort of new look at adultery um there's Days of Abandonment by uh, Elena Ferrante but that that's more about the aftermath of betrayal Right. Well, you know who writes, I mean, in a nonfiction capacity about this is Esther Perel, um, thinking about someone who's trying to look at adultery in a more progressive way, perhaps, where her whole thing, and I think you could apply this to these fictional characters, is that the affair is never about the marriage. It's about the person themselves kind of wanting to have their own experience. I mean, I'm paraphrasing very badly and mangling her idea slightly. But if you think about it in that context, in terms of like novels like Anna Karenina, Madame Bovary, like the the will to adultery is actually because they want to explore a new part of themselves more than anything. Um, It's kind of not a running away from the self, but like running towards another part of the self, Mm. which is quite an interesting thought. That is a very interesting thought. Mm, should we think about it? Should we think about it for a second? <laughs> um, on a completely different note, one of the one of the genres that features a lot of running away is children's books. Absolutely. <laughs> Let's jump in. Adultery, children. Well, sometimes well, related the undesired uh, result of an adultery <laughs> is a child. Wow. Very good. Wait, wait, wait. I'm, I'm just helping that with on. these segues, my darling. Um, I'm helping. But yeah, it's when I was thinking about the books that featured characters on the run, you know, children's books come up a lot. And I, th- I think it is because of that fantasy, of course, again, of running away from home. Totally. It's so central to the, the childhood experience. Oh, my God. The oppression of your parents is unlivable. <laughs> Age like five or six. Do you rem- Did you ever try to run away when you were a kid? No, I was very obedient and I loved my parents very much. <laughs> did you? Yeah, of course I did. Have you met me? <laughs> I think the first time was when I was six and I packed my lunchbox and I got to, I was at my uncle's farm and I got to the garden gate and it felt like this huge statement and obviously I'd been gone for 35 seconds and I stood there got really scared and came back home and no one had noticed that I had almost run away and it was the most disappointing experience of my young life so um yeah and then you learn to read books about it that's right that's absolutely right yeah I mean Peter Pan was a running away narrative that like got me so powerfully when I was young just the thought that like this gorgeous fairy boy would come and sit on my windowsill and we would I would literally jump out the window with him and disappear into the night. What a compelling yeah. thought. My favorite book as a kid was from the mixed up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler, which I think I've it. mentioned before on the show. <laughs> no, I do. It's what an you American just classic. Said. All right. By E.L. Konigsberg. 
Wow. It's it's an amazing book. It's about two, uh, two siblings who run away to the Met Museum. Oh, gorgeous. And they sleep in I mean, the antique beds and they collect coins from the fountain. And it, it, it was that that fantasy was so powerful to a obedient but like sort of cultured child like myself. Sorry, that's so, that's so <laughs> conceited to say that I was cultured as a child. But anyway, no, it's but a great it, book. I mean, come on, like not every kid's dream fantasy would be to go to the Met Museum. So yeah. I think it's fair to say that. OK, thanks. Mine was to go to a different planet <laughs> <laughs> but yeah was the boxcar children big i've heard of it UK? but i know yeah it was about these siblings who have to run away and live in a boxcar and that fantasy is so exciting and and uh, saying it i never ran away from home but my sister and my favorite game to play was being orphans and like hiding from planes that were looking for us and like making our own soup out of things we found in the forest. So it is such a primal instinct. Right. Well, it? for a child, it's the fantasy of self-sufficiency. Yeah. And I mean, you just want to say to them, guys, there is so long for that later. <laughs> and it's so boring. Well, it's boring. But don't you ever think about the fact that as an adult, I can just eat candy whenever I want. I mean, And I do sometimes. And it's feels great. Cake for breakfast yeah. is a regular in my household. Okay, we are really running off the rails. Octavia. <laughs> Do you think that we are all on the run in two books when we read them? Yeah. <laughs> no, I I definitely use reading to escape my life and myself and the harsh realities of the world. And not always and not every book I read is a form of running away at all at all. Some books I read are a form of like sharpening my focus actually onto reality. But um, it's it's definitely a facet of my reading life. Um, and when when devastating things happen that feel very beyond my control, like global politics going against what are my core values and it, it leaves me feeling absolutely rotten, I 100% escape into utopian narratives of books I love or books I've known feed me sucker or show me a completely different world, you know? So yeah, what about you? I don't really think of books as escapism. And in fact, when I really need to escape from the world in which I'm living, books don't really help me very much. Interesting. What do you I, do I, instead? You go I, for a run, don't you? I, yeah, I you play go for sports. a literal run. Yeah, I, I go for a run or I play football or watch really mindless TV. But I feel like the way that I have to engage with a book, if there's something that's on my mind, I I actually have a lot of trouble reading books when I'm in my own head. So essentially, you, the things that you choose are to numb out if it's like TV or to be active in your body to take yourself away from your mind. Whereas I go into fantasy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's really interesting. <laughs> Should we talk quickly about our favorite books about being on the run? Yeah. Well, it was funny, actually. I found it quite difficult to come up with something for this because everything felt a bit too nomadic for the theme um, and then I realized actually The Year of Magical Thinking by Joan Didion really fits in a in a slightly mm. off the wall way um, and I mean it's an it's an amazing book and worth reading if you haven't read um, but also it's it's not so much a book about someone who's literally on the run but it's about the struggle to remain in the present through an acute experience of grief and uh, it's a memoir she writes it in the aftermath of her husband's death and her daughter's life-threatening illness. And it's she's like, she's in the trenches with herself as she's doing it. And this makes it sound like a miserable read, but it really isn't. It's incredibly piercing and clear. And actually the clarity of thought that you have when you're in extremists like that can be like nothing else. 
And it's a very honest representation of how we process or fail to process one of the biggest emotions in the game, which is grief. So, yeah. And it feels like it fits with something that Ema's trying to do in her book, Strange Hotel. So totally. It's such a wonderful book. Mm. What about you? Well, mine is going to be The Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead. Uh, this book was published a few years ago. It's about Cora, a slave who escapes from her sadistic slave owner's plantation and is on the run to the north to freedom. You know, we kind of know this narrative, but what is brilliant about it is that The Underground Railroad is actually a railroad, which is so great, which is something that I think a lot of children think when they're kids. I certainly thought that until I learned what The Underground Railroad actually was. Um, and he just he takes that fantasy and makes it a reality, but somehow also just grounds it in historical fact in a way that makes the book feel important and worthy of such a big topic. And it also tackles different kinds of racism and structural oppression that aren't just slavery. And I think does it incredibly well while also just being a wonderful book to read. I haven't read it yet, and I'm really, yeah, it's on the pile, the ever-growing pile. I liked it a lot. Yeah, good. Good to know. I'm Carrie Plitt, back here with Octavia Bright and also Emer McBride to give our book recommendations. Octavia, would you like to start. I would love to start. Thank you. I'm recommending a book called Things I Don't Want to Know by Deborah Levy, which actually feels really apt to talk about at the same time as Strange Hotel because a part of it is set in a hotel room in quite a remote part of Mallorca and she's writing about her life in her from the perspective of her 40s. So there's a nice kind of parallel there. But it's just a phenomenal read. It's the first of three books in what she calls her living autobiography, which Carrie, I know you loved The Cost of Living, which is the next one. Yes. And which I, I haven't read yet. It's oh, God, it's wonderful. And it sort of made me have a crisis in my life. It was so wonderful. You know, that that kind of book. But I, I've been desperate to read this forever. So I'm really glad you liked it. Yeah, I think you'll love it. It's just it's it's more of, I guess it's an essay, but it's, a, you know, a book length essay. And she gets to this place in Mallorca and she starts looking back on her life. So she's talking about her childhood in South Africa and she's talking about when she moved to the UK and then her kind of early adulthood. Um, but it's also this brilliant exercise in memory and the way that things remind us of other things in a non-linear way. But then because she's Deborah Levy, she brings it all together through little reflective repetitions that ultimately come together and, and show you the way that she's never lost the thread, even though it's felt a little bit chaotic at times. But the language is also just incredibly pure and stripped back. And it, I read it in one sitting. I literally got home, sat on my sofa, and then by the time I stood up again, it was dark and I'd finished it, which is always a brilliant, brilliant way to read a book. So yeah, I'd recommend it. I really, really would. I think also the thing I love about her writing is she's very funny and caustic and... Um, takes no prisoners there's no kind of dilly-dallying with Deborah Levy so yeah a big massive thumbs up great Emer, do you have a recommendation well my recommendation is um Garth Greenwell's new novel <gasps> Cleanness yes I'm so desperate to read that yeah, it sounds amazing it is fantastic I mean no one writes like Garth Greenwell does I mean he his his language is just it's like silk it just kind of pours over you and it's it's a delight to read um and and I think what I really like about this book as I liked about his last was the very deep humanity that he writes with and 
a kind of um, a refusal of cruelty, a, even in situations that are difficult or, or that are violent, that he does not allow himself to be lazy in any way. And the book it has some very wonderful sex written in it and some of it very difficult um, a lot of it very beautiful and he writes really incredibly well about sex he's probably one of my favourite writers um, on, on on the subject of sex so I yeah I strongly recommend Cleanness I want to read it yeah it's I don't I think it's either just been published in the UK or just about to be published is that right I, I can't think remember so. I think it's just come out in the US so it can't yeah. be it can't be far. But it's on my bedside table and I'm, I have heard, I I didn't read his first novel, but I've heard that's amazing as well. Um, and I can't oh, wait to read yeah, it. so it is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm going to recommend a book that probably does not need any recommendation because it just co-won the Booker Prize. So I'm sorry for being so unoriginal, but I'm going to recommend Girl, Woman, Other by Bernardine Evaristo, which... I, I do actually feel compelled to recommend because it's so good. And I guess I should have known that because it won the Booker. But I mean, you can't really trust the Booker Prize, can you? No. You know, you can't trust prizes. No. But this is legitimately good. And I think it's much better than its title, which seems a little bit, I don't categorical or something in a way that the book is absolutely the opposite of that. It is so alive and fresh and real in this way and I know real is a terrible way to describe things as a critic of a book um, but it feels real these are the stories of 12 interconnected women and while this could seem like a gimmick it really doesn't because as I said the characters are so alive that nothing about it seems constructed or gimmicky they say it sort of very organically builds through each of these stories and I also think it's such a difficult trick to pull off to to make the reader start a new story again every chapter but she does it and she's just incredibly acutely attuned to the details that make up a life. She's attuned to the messiness, to the pain and joy of being a woman, to black women's experience in the UK in particular um, in this way that shows uh, the diversity of life rather than the singularity of, of one story or one kind of person and it just it's great it's beautifully human and you know makes her point from the bottom up through the lives of the characters rather than from the top down and I really loved it yeah I really want to read that that's all the time we have for today thanks to our interviewee Emer McBride to Paula at NTS and to Eddie Knight for editing and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram at LitFriction. You can also get in touch with us on email litfriction at gmail.com. We love to hear from you. We do. We'll be back in two weeks with another mini-sode. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright and this is Literary Friction. <laughs> <laughs>